Testament just to open, and then we're going to go to the New Testament. It's the story in 2 Kings about a man by the name of Naaman. And a lot of you know the story of Naaman who have been in the church and have read this portion of Scripture. Naaman was a great man in his respective field. He was the leader of all of the armies of a foreign nation. He was not Jewish. He was not an Israelite. In fact, he was considered to be one of the enemies of the Israelite nation. And this great commander over all of the armies of the nation, not the king, but pretty much the second in command, the, the overseeing general, has a physical condition. He has what we know as leprosy. And nothing can fix it, but he hears about a prophet by the name Elisha. And he goes to Elisha with the expectation that this great prophet is going to heal Naaman. And it's a crazy story that has to do a lot with pride and humbling of pride and inevitable healing. And that, that's, that's where we're going to pick up is this man was healed. And his healing led to a radical life transformation where he realized every aspect of my foreign religion, my nation, could not help me. There was no hope in all that I lived my life by in my world. But then I come to my enemy who serves this God, Yahweh, the one true God, and he humiliates me, even though he wasn't really humiliating him. He was just a very prideful man and, and, and thought he was better than that if you read the story. But he, I'm so mad about the way he treated me, and yet I'm healed. And he has this radical transformation. And then this man, Naaman, then makes a request of the prophet that I want to read for you right here to set the tone for my message today. Second Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 15, it says this. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. This is after he was healed. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. That's the one true God. I've, I've experienced it. So please accept this gift from your servant. He wants to, he wants to pay him with treasures and money. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a penny. And even though Naaman urged him, like, no, come on, come on, I want to give this to you, you deserve it. No, not going to do it. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make a burnt offering and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. I'm not done. Just pause real quick. Like, what does the dirt have to do with anything? This is kind of like when you want a memento. You want a reminder of something. Like people who travel to Israel today, they like to bring back memorabilia from Israel to remember their time there. You get a, a postcard, a souvenir. That's what he's doing. There wasn't anything magical about the dirt. He's like, I want to bring this with me. It was a common practice that was done when converting to certain religions or great experiences. And he says, this is going to be a reminder for me. I will only serve the one true God from this point on. Totally sold out for the Lord. Verse 18. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. Uh-oh. When my master, this is the second in command of the whole nation. Master, king. When my master enters the temple of Ramon, false god, to bow down. And he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, a false temple, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. That's a big request. This is Naaman admitting that I have to do something because of my status, my position, my responsibilities. I have to do something that is going to be looked at as compromising my faith. Can God forgive me? Elisha's response. Go in peace. Don't worry. Don't pay another thought to it. Go in peace. Now, that's really what I want to talk about today. 
I'm going to bring it back. This is leaving you hanging because I know that just was a big question and a void that was created that needs to be answered. That's going to be answered. But simply put today, I want to talk to you about godly living in godless territory. Something that we as Christians, if you're a Christian here, will face, has faced, can't escape. It's something we need to learn how to navigate through. And, and I just want to say this. Um, a lot of times, and rightly so, we talk about how we need to keep the faith in the face of the temptation to abandon the faith. I'm not demeaning that. I preach on that all the time. I'm not really hitting that too hard today. I'm hitting the opposite aspect of, well, are there aspects of my faith that I ought to be careful not to shove down everyone's mouths because I think that's what's making me truly a strong, sold-out believer. So I, I'm going to probably at times hit both, but we're going to really hit that, that latter aspect. Um, and we know this is so pertinent for us today in our society. I mean, you look at the start of even our nation, America, to, to today. Th there's been problems, there's been blessings, and there's been curses all throughout. We're, we're a fallen and broken people, the whole world. We, we've got imperfections, but if we really look at the church, man, there have been such ebbs and flows of good and then horrible and then good and then horrible. And that's still going on today, but if we look at even the technological advancement in society in the last 30 years, even in the last 20 years, it's like every decade we are moving faster than we can keep up with as a people. That's why there's such spikes in levels of anxiety and depression in youth today because technology is so overly available in ways that wasn't for previous generations that is literally messing with our cognitive abilities. Th there's so much science behind it, Hall, and we cannot be under the lie or under the ignorant assumption that that kind of cultural push has not seeped its way into our personal lives and affected our personal relationship with the Lord and the church and Christianity itself. The church in the last 50 years, the church in the last 10 years has radically shifted in good and in really bad ways. And, and there's just so much we need to be aware of, especially as it pertains to because the culture is radically changing at a pace that I can't seem to keep up with, what foundational truths can I stand on that I know will be a rock in this tumultuous, changing season of life that seems to never end? If we don't have that foundation, we're going to be lost. We're going to fall. We're going to stay broken. So that, that's, that's really leading up to the book of First Peter that we opened up last week, and I want to remain in it for this week. Uh, and I'm going to backtrack. We were in chapter 4 last week, and last week we talked about the significance of suffering, especially as it pertains to when God would allow it, why would God allow it, to what purpose and to what end does it serve, uh, the benefits, the, the being careful of who to ascribe it to and when not to ascribe it to certain people. First um, Peter, as we saw, was written to a group of individuals that were being persecuted. You saw how I brought in the reality of the burning of Rome and how Nero blamed that on the Christians. And Christians underwent massive persecution at the start in about 64 AD. And the time of 1 Peter was potentially written right around that time, maybe before, but likely a little bit after. And now Paul, is, excuse me, Peter is writing a letter to Christians of all different ethnicities who have accepted Jesus, who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire and are experiencing persecution. Why? Because of their Christianity. Not because of the color of their skin, not because of their social status, not because of their economics. Those were reasons to persecute people in the day. But these individuals that Peter was writing to were ultimately being persecuted because they proclaimed Jesus. And Peter is writing this letter, just as a reminder and a recap from last week, to encourage them to keep the faith. But also, he spends the vast majority of the letter talking about how we are, in light of my title today, to remain in godly lifestyles in the midst of a godless territory, a season. 
a country, a community, wherever you are, saying, how can I serve God when everything around me is against God? How can I keep the faith? How can I keep rapport and good relationship with these individuals who don't believe in God but are his children and need his love nonetheless rather than getting upset and angry because they're persecuting me rather than getting upset and saying you know you deserve what's coming for you how do I respond as Jesus responded that's really what Peter is hitting in the entirety of this book and what I want to do is I want to pick up in chapter 2 in chapter 2 starting in verse 11 Peter proceeds to give his readers the importance of understanding how we are to live godly lives when everything around us is not godly. But what's really, really important, really important, is starting in kind of the beginning of chapter 2, in verses 3 through 10, he gives this discourse on the fact that we are free, we are alive, we have hope, we have love, all of that only because of Jesus. He's saying it's all because of Christ's death on the cross and the perfect sinless life that he lived for us that we have the ability to do what Peter is about to command us to do next. And that's important because, listen, let's pick up in verse 11. He says this, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So the very first thing that we need to point out is the identification that Peter ascribes to his readers. Right here, he's very deliberate with his words. He doesn't say, my fellow Christians, my fellow brothers and sisters, dear ones. We see that in scripture all the time. He specifically ascribes to them foreigners and exiles. Literally, they are foreigners and exiles. Remember last week we talked about these that were scattered throughout Asia Minor in the ancient times of the biblical writing of this letter. They were half-citizens, kind of like they had their green card. So they were allowed to be there, but they didn't have the full privileges of citizenship, being in the Roman Empire, different ethnicities, different cultures, but they were Christians living in this Roman Empire. And Peter is saying, okay, you all know this is what you are but he's using it to describe a deeper meaning that has a spiritual connotation. He's saying, listen, you are foreigners and aliens in your literal citizenship status in the Roman Empire, but now I need to speak to the more important aspect of your spiritual standing. You are foreigners and aliens perpetually, no matter if you are a Roman citizen or not. Why? Because you are children of the Most High God, and your destiny is eternity. God wants you to be with him in heaven. This, this life on earth is a blimp. It's, it's a wisp of smoke. It's going to be, it's so fleeting. So just remember this. Why, why is this so important? Listen, l l let me give you this, this point. Never forget your identity. Never forget your identity. Think about it. In the previous verses that I just told you, if you go back and read after here, he says your identity is in Jesus. Now you are especially identified as foreigners and aliens, not to demean them, but to say, remember that you are not long for this world. This world is not your home. And remember, he is writing this to individuals who are literally foreigners and aliens who are being persecuted because of their faith. Peter is saying, if you don't remember your identity in Jesus, everything that I tell you right now is going to fall on deaf ears because you're going to be caught up with interpreting your circumstances through the lens of this life apart from Jesus. Why does all this bad happen to me? Why am I being persecuted? Why is life so hard right now? Without Jesus, there is no answer to that question. And you will continually run to substances and circumstances to numb you to the pain that you're feeling. That's why, again, remember, suffering is inevitable, but Jesus, with him, suffering ends. You can't escape it, except with Jesus. So, let me just say this to you. How you view yourself will influence how you conduct yourself. If you view yourself as 
deserving of everything good in this world and of nothing bad in this world. What's going to happen when you get a reality check? You're going to be so broken and mangled and hurt and twisted and embittered and jealous towards everybody and everything around you because you forgot your identity. And this is not for us to feel like utter trash and to say, I'm worthless. I'm That's not what this is saying. This is just saying, remember your status in Jesus. It's hopeful when you remember all this crap that's happening in my life. Excuse me. I can remember right now that Jesus said it's going to end. You're going to be delivered from this. So don't compromise. Don't waver. Don't move from being firmly fixed on the foundation of the gospel. Stand firm. How you view yourself will influence how you conduct yourself. You're a child of God if you choose to receive it. He then goes on and he uses specifically after he says, again, the identification, know your identity. He goes on and he gives the specific first command, abstain from sinful desires. It's an interesting usage of the words in that phrase in the Greek. Sinful desires carries the idea of uncurbed human impulses. In other words, just this utter desire to constantly give in to every carnal instinct. It feels good, I want it. 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 Why shouldn't I have it? I'm going to go for it. And then we inevitably justify why we ought to. Like, uh, I'm going to do me and nobody ought to worry about that consequences you know who, who cares about them and peter come on church house peter specifically says abstain from such desires and again i'm going to keep bringing it back to this remember the context these individuals were being persecuted for their faith so wow this is perfectly applicable to this temptation to hey i, I, I want to go and get higher hey i want to sleep around with everybody or whatever it is you name it this is specifically speaking to something a little bit bigger and harder. Sinful desires that will cause you to compromise your faith. Anything that will cause you living under persecution that would be tempting to go to to cause you to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have to put God on the shelf for now just for the time being because this feels better or this will serve me better. This will keep me from persecution. He's saying abstain abstain but remember this applies to every aspect of our lives because you are a living testimony we're witnesses and we ought to show the world how sold out for the lord we are so uh the last phrase that's interesting here he says abstain from sinful desires which now he kind of gives a why to all of it he says because these sinful desires are that which are waging war against your soul now, what's, what's interesting here is that ancient rabbinic teachings uh, would contemplate this idea of spiritual warfare and as it pertained to the soul. And they viewed the soul in light of the idea of this kind of metaphor. Your soul is two dogs. Let's say like uh, two dogs. I don't care. Rottweilers. We'll say Rottweilers, all right, because I want to think about spiders. Uh, and they, they would teach this. Your soul is comprised of two dogs. Sin and righteousness. Which one you feed more will grow to overpower the other. And they would, this is ancient rabbinic Jewish teaching. They would teach this about soul. They're saying, and all of us have souls. You cannot escape the fact we are eternal beings destined for eternity. We have souls. So be mindful of which one you're feeding into more regularly. Look at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire, desires that battle within you? The soul, when you're feeding the sinful dog more, that's the cause of all your quarrels among you. Wouldn't be if you're really living for the Lord. You desire, but don't have. So you kill. I don't got it. I'm going to get what I want. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. 
You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Yeah, for anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's strong language, but it's so important, again, for us to be mindful of that we need to recognize there's a war inside of us. This is, again, that, that first, the topic of spiritual warfare in the church. You've got to realize it, it's all happening right in here. And this, this is metaphorical. It's not like my soul's here if you cut me open. I'm just saying here. It happens in us. And we need to be so mindful of the battle that we are in constantly. Every action that we take, every move, every thought, every word, everything that we're doing, is this a step towards righteousness or a, a, a bone thrown to the dog of sinfulness that's just going to grow stronger and stronger until I wake up one day and I don't know what to do with myself? Peter says, abstain from that. Abstain. Why? Because it's for your benefit. Not for your hurt. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 12. He goes on, the next command. He goes, live such good lives among the pagans. Anybody that doesn't believe in God. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is where I'm really going to try to transition our talk because Peter, he did say, when it comes to sin, abstain. Don't compromise. Don't go to idolatry. Stand firm in your faith. Fight for it. But now he's really going to address this topic of godly living and godless character. And I think it's interesting how he specifically says, keep go doing good. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, one of what's interesting, and I think we can all agree with this, um, human nature, it, it, it's like in us. It is so in us to just watch people and to, and to assess them and to judge them. Even when we're not doing it maliciously, we're just like, I wonder where that person's from. It might be harmless. You're like, I wonder what their story is. <laughs> or you might be like, like, my wife has had a lot of experiences that everywhere we're driving and we go to a stop, she, she's like, lock the doors. I'm like, why lock the doors? She's like, that's what my mom taught me, so I lock the doors, a single lady by myself. I'm like, okay, no matter what your teaching was, your upbringing was, it's like we all have this disposition and this desire to just, like, we can't help it. We look at someone, especially when we don't know them, and we just, we, we try to piece them apart and think about who they are. And if you never do that, God bless you. You're a liar, but God bless you because we all do that. Um, and, and, and we got to be careful with this. Um, and this is really interesting. If it's inevitable for individuals to look at other individuals and judge them, what were the implications for Christians that Peter was writing to? Let me just break down for you what we see when we really study scripture, what the world's perspective was looking from the outside in at the Christians. Okay. First, they thought they were cannibals. Unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood. Christ said this. What? That's, that's wrong. Even Jews were, were mortified when Jesus said that. It's like you don't drink people's blood. It's in the Mosaic law. Jesus wasn't speaking literally. He was speaking metaphorically, but they didn't get that. They thought he meant it literally. And so whether they were there or not, that narrative and that seed was planted and it was being spread all throughout the world. Cannibals, stay away from them. They're like, we don't do that. It's bread and it's wine. It's like, that's not what it is. They thought they were incestuous. Unfortunately, the book of 1 Corinthians proved that that was the case in the church. But ultimately, they thought that because, what do you see at a lot of the, uh, at the end of the epistles in the New Testament? Greet one another with a kiss of love. And it's like, oh my goodness, there's brothers and sisters there, and, and they kiss, and brothers and sisters means family of God, but there were probably actual brothers and sisters that were related in the church, and they were looking from the outside in, and potentially thought, man, those people are weird. <laughs> They're really weird, like sleeping around with cousins and uncles and, and all that. Uh, they ultimately thought they were treasonous because when you do ancient Near Eastern studies, the Christians abstained fully from being involved in any sort of outright uh, empirical governmental situation. They wouldn't sign up to fight in the army. 
uh, because they said, listen, th- this isn't for us. I'm not making that application to us in America. I'm just saying that's what was the case in the Roman Empire. Uh, and especially when it came to what we know Jesus said to Peter, when it came to taxes, they paid their taxes, but for some reason the world thought that the Christians were just so anti-Roman Empire. Probably for legitimate reasons. There were Jewish sects that were confused with Christian called the Zealots who were revolutionary. They would go, they would incite violence and and murder because they were against the Roman Empire. Judas Iscariot was potentially one of those zealots that Jesus called to be one of his disciples. So there's a lot of potential proof for the fact that the world looking in at Christians, you know, they're treasonous. They're not for the Roman Empire. We better steer clear of them. Um, And lastly, they just saw them as immoral, especially because of the fact that they only served one God. In the Roman Empire, you served many gods. You didn't just pick and choose one. That was very anti the religious customs of the world, and they thought this this is, in their minds, sinful, without even using that word. So here's the bottom line about, uh, about just that picture. The world from the outside was looking in at Christians who, other than the incestuous one where we have some credibility for that, None of this was true. These were judgments about Christians that were so far off from the reality. So Peter, in addressing this, says, well, let me say what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you have every right to be mad. And you ought to be livid. You ought to go out there and scream it from the rooftops. Don't you know who we are? This isn't who we are. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing all of these wrongs that you don't do, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he returns. Man, that's powerful. Christians then and Christians today, we can say are improperly judged because we're misunderstood. Again, I'm not denying bad experiences that maybe even people in this house have had that we've seen and experienced. It's true. But listen, that's not God's fault. That's broken people's fault that I wish they weren't Christians that treated you that way. But unfortunately, they were not acting in God's stead. They weren't. So let's be careful again not to blame God. Ultimately, we're always going to be judged out of context. Um, It's funny. I I was talking with my wife about this, and, and she brought up the fact of, like, one of the reasons that for whatever reason, she doesn't come right out and tell people that she's Puerto Rican is because she's not deeply offended by it. She just finds it to be an annoying question. Every time somebody finds out a Puerto Rican, they'll be like, oh, and they like their demeanor changes and they think she's spicy and she's fiery and she's got attitude. And it's funny because people will literally ask me that who don't know my wife. They're like, you're married? Oh, yeah, I'm like, she's Puerto Rican. Oh, what's it like being married to a Puerto Rican? I'm like, I, I, oh, I don't know. Ask her. Uh, I love it, man. Um, and, and, it, and it just goes to show, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of that. I'm just saying it goes to show, like, we can't help it. Like, we do that about everything. We, we judge everything. Sometimes we do it very improperly, and sometimes we just do it ignorantly. Paul says, in spite of the fact that people are going to malign you and accuse you of things that are just flat-out lies, Your response is, live such good lives. And it's an imperative. I think this is so powerful here. He's not giving a suggestion. He's giving a command. He's not saying if it works for you, saying, no, this is the way. And let me just make this point here. Our priority shouldn't be someone else's opinion, but our own practice. If we live our lives constantly trying to change someone else's mindset, you're probably not going to change it. It's like, I don't, I don't want to sound hopeless because you can take that a lot of different ways. I'm not saying we shouldn't speak, we shouldn't talk, we shouldn't bring correction when correction is needed. But ultimately, if you are so fixated on the baggage that you carry all because of the words that someone spoke over you, you are going to remain stuck there perpetually. God says, don't fall for that trap. Don't bite that bait. Be fixated on how you can live upright. Why? Because there will come a reckoning. 
when every deed will be laid bare before all creation in all time. And God is going to evaluate us and the world is going to see, oh, those were lies. Those people weren't what I judged them to be. So our response as Christians to be examples is that whenever we have wrongs perpetrated against us, our response is to step to the wall. Do the exact opposite. All right, verses 13 through 17. Now he goes into this topic of submission. And this is a topic that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. There's so much historical study that has to go into this. So just be careful. Whenever you, if you hear a word that triggers you and like, oh, I don't like that. Careful. Because a lot of times we interpret scripture through a Western mindset and our own baggage. We've got to be careful. This is a completely different culture, a completely different time. Uh, so just try to read it and hear it carefully without any other lenses. And he opens up this topic of submission and he says this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Whether the emperor, Nero, who's burning Christians alive, submit to him as the supreme authority. Or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong Submit to him. To command those who do right. For it is God's will. Oh, Peter's making this personal. It's God's will. For it is God's will that by doing good. Did you hear that? For it is God's will that by, not God's will that you're being persecuted by these individuals. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. 17. Big. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. And there was so much that was said there. I'm not going to break it all down. Uh, again, broadly speaking, when you read these few chapters of the book of 1 Peter, Peter now jumps and he, he says, don't give in, abstain from these sinful desires, live such good lives that even uh, among the pagans, that even though when they're accusing you of doing wrong, you can prove through your practice that you were people of integrity, that meant what you said when you lived it. But now here's where you can really practically put into practice living such good lives. Submit to the people who are persecuting you. What do you do with that? You wanted to hear, keep reading your Bible. Come to church. Pass out a track to someone at work about the God. That's what you wanted to hear, right? Oh, that's, I, that, yes, that's true. Absolutely, I believe that. That's not what Peter's talking about here. This is within the context of persecution as believers for their faith. How do you live such good lives among the pagans? That even though they accuse you of doing wrong, God would receive all the glory when he returns. Submit to them. Not just the emperor who passes the command. Submit to the governors and the local ordinances who are carrying out the governor's command. Submit to the soldiers when they come on your door. Jesus said, go the extra mile. When someone takes your cloak, give, give, them, give them, or actually give them two. He, he's not just talking about people in need. He's talking about Roman soldiers who legally had the right to go into a, to a, a non-Roman citizen's house to sit down at their dinner table to demand, feed me and maybe some of my fellow soldiers. While you're at it, let me look at what you got. Pick money, pick clothing, pick livestock. Maybe have sexual relations with family members and you couldn't do a thing about it. Jesus says, go the extra mile. When they ask and demand for one, give them two. Don't go pull out your nine and tell them to get out of the house, your 12 gauge. Give them all you got. Show them you can't hurt me. You can't hurt me. I'm free in Jesus. I'm free in Jesus. I am a foreigner and an alien in this place. 
this is not my home, though you're persecuting me, it will end. I am free in Jesus. This is hard stuff. This is hard stuff, man. And he goes on, and if you read all of these chapters, it's all about submission. He talks about submit to the governing authorities. And we're going to see in a second, he says, slaves, submit to your masters. Again, don't think slaves in American context is the idea of bond servants, but still bond servants. Slaves, you submit to your masters. He goes on, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. It's in other scriptures, but children, obey your parents. The idea of submission there. And then, as we looked at last week, literally, Peter's saying, submit to suffering. Oh, my goodness. That is, that is stuff that we don't talk about regularly in here regularly. Standing up, fighting, being firm. Peter's talking about that too. You are in spiritual warfare. But the question is how you're fighting. The steps that you're taking. The actions that you're taking. People who are being persecuted. Let me just give you an Old Testament scripture that honestly has helped me so much when I've been in difficult situations as a Christian or going through seasons that were just so hard that I know were not from God that were because of my own mistakes or just because of living in this broken world. Jeremiah 29, 7. I love this verse. This is the command of God through his prophet, Jeremiah, that is said specifically to individuals who have been sent off into exile because of their own mistakes. It wasn't because of wrongs that were perpetrated against them outside of their control. They turned their back on God again and again, and God kept warning them, if you do this, It's going to end in your demise. Don't do it. Repent, turn, repent, turn. And he gave them hundreds of years to turn and repent, and they wouldn't. And then finally, warring nations came, led them off into exile. Now they are literally, again, foreigners and aliens, just like the New Testament believers under the Roman Empire were. They were foreigners and aliens in a land that was not their own. And here's what God's command is in 29.7 of Jeremiah. Also, seek the Peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Man. So this is saying before your community, before your city, the very people that led you into exile and you are now captives of. Seek their well-being seek that they would prosper because it's going to benefit you this is not unbelievably supernatural lofty ideas this is very practical saying build good relationships even though they might look different you and they don't submit to the same god that you do be praying for them seek that they would come to know god because it's going to benefit you and by extension it's going to benefit them and it will be a perfect inroad to sharing the gospel let's come back to Naaman talked about that story in the beginning Naaman asked a big ask he said please pray for me that the Lord would forgive me that when I go to this false God's temple And I'm there for the express purpose of helping my master worship that when I get down and I look as if I am worshiping just as he is worshiping, I pray that God would know my heart. This is important. This is not a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment where they stood up for their faith. He's not there to worship. He's there because he's got to continue to live out his life as the commander of the army for a king. And his king, for whatever reason, needed help so that when he leans on my arm, could have been a decrepit king, could have had a limp in his step, could have had some sort of physical, and we don't know. But for whatever reason, he's being very vivid here that when I go that, when when I have to bend to help my king down, could have been a ceremonial process, whatever the case is. Even though I am doing this action, it means nothing. And he said previously in 2 Kings, he goes, I will never sacrifice to any other God. I will never go myself and offer up alms and hope that that false God would bless me. I will only serve God. But for the sake of my job, I've got to go here 
and I've got to stand by the king. This is really difficult because now we're teetering on that line of, Pastor, are you talking about compromising your faith? Nope, I am not. Take a look. Now let's come back to 1 Peter. We read it in verses 16 and 17, but particularly in verse 17, um, he says, show proper respect. The word's important. Show proper respect to everyone. And he gives three, three specifics. Love the family of believers. Christians, love them. Fear God, honor the emperor. The words here are very significant. Because the word for respect, it, I'm not going to tell you the Greek. You know what, let me come back to that one. The word for love is agape. Love the family of believers unconditionally. No matter what, always love them. Always be willing to do whatever you can without reservation for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Revere God. Fear him. This means you know he's God and you're not going to step out of line to idolatry. He is the one true God that you serve. That's it. You serve no other gods beside him. But the last word for honor the king or honor the emperor is the same exact verb that's used for show proper respect for everyone. It is literally that idea of respecting them. You're not showing them the same exact love that you show the community of believers. It's different. You're not showing, certainly not showing them reverence that you would for God and their customs and their practices. Nope, I only serve God. That's it. But I'll respect you. I don't agree with you, but I'll respect you. And remember, this, this might sound like something, oh, we shouldn't do that in America. As believers, we're tempted to think that we can't do that in America. With the way America's going, we can't do that. The way the church is going, we can't do that. This is written to a people who are being persecuted. They are way further into it in the deep end than we are. And Peter is saying exactly what they were to do. Respect them. Go out and burn every bridge possible because you disagree with their lifestyle. Yeah, we're not going to compromise our convictions. But there are certain things that we need to be willing to say, as long as this doesn't compromise my faith. If it means paying taxes to Caesar, I'll pay taxes to Caesar. But I'll give to God what's God. That's my life. That's my soul. If they want me to deny my faith, I won't do that. But if it means I need to associate myself with people of different belief systems, if it means I'm going to have a cup of coffee with them, if it means I might go and support a fund, I don't know, you name it. We need to be willing to do that. Show them respect. Not hatred, not vile contempt. Because Peter is saying, he's being really practical here. Not only because does it maintain the integrity of your faith and your witness needs to be louder than your words, he's saying, don't make things harder for yourself than they already are. And Peter is writing this on the cusp of historical massive persecution. He's writing this in light of the fact that things are getting bad. So let's not add gas to the fire. As long as it doesn't compromise our faith, be wise. Seek the prosperity of the city that you are living in exile in. Man, the Bible is so clear about this. Ultimately, here's, here's what I want to say to you. Stop looking for excuses to rebel and start looking for ways to rebuild. Rather, rather than being so upset with how much the world thinks about us, remember, they're always going to have false, false judgments about us. They're always going to hurl insults at us. It's not going to change. What are you called to do? Don't change their opinion. Focus on your practice. Seek to rebuild relationships out of respect. And pray for them. Um, and this is why I asked the question for us today. Uh, I've asked this before, and I'd just like to remind us of it. If the church closed its door today, would the community feel it? If we as a church building had to close up whatever, for whatever reason, and could no longer meet, could no longer be a church body, and went our separate ways, would the church feel it? Um, I'm going to be honest with you right now. This is not a moment of chastisement. It's just a moment of enlightenment that says, okay, we got to keep moving forward. I had a conversation with community leaders in Tinton Falls, and they asked, are you meeting in person? And I said, yeah, we're meeting together for over a year now. Can I be honest with you? I mean, we pass by your church all the time. We had no idea that you guys were still meeting. We had no idea that you guys were even open. I was like, 
as mad as that makes me, and I want to justify, well, maybe if you did this, maybe if you did this, much you want to do that, I can't do that. All I can think of is, okay, God, help us to do more. Help us to be better. Help us to keep moving forward to show the community we're here for you, which leads me to the initiative that we're going to be taking as a church in this spiritual fall journey as we walk through the book of Acts. Not only are we going to be gathering in love groups to grow in this community and hopefully others, we're going to be out there for the community. And we're going to have on October 23rd, it's a Saturday, starting at 9 a.m., a day of love. And we're simply calling this Love Force. We need to start creating the narrative that we are a community that is for, we're a church, we're a body of believers that is for the prosperity and the health and the respect of our community. This is a day that we want to show our love for our community. Again, Titton Falls, Asbury, Neptune, Wanamassa, Oakhurst, whatever it is. We want to show our community we're here and we're for you. And this is going to be such a practical day to bless our community. We're reaching out to vendors, to businesses, to give donations. We're hopefully we'll be able to give out vouchers for people in need to go and buy groceries. We want to give out baby products, hygiene products. We want to give a clothing drive for coats, clothes, anything that people need. We're reaching out to local organizations to come and take people's blood pressures, people with low income financial advising that can help people who need direction for food stamps, for how to get into a, a, a living space. Anything and everything that we can do to be a hub for our community to help them, we need to be about. And so this is going to be an incredible day for us to really band together and be the hands and the feet of Jesus, to be his instruments of righteousness, to show the world that we mean business, that we don't just talk a big talk or to prove them wrong through our practice. That's, this day is going to be a day of love shown forth that I'm excited for. There's going to be so many opportunities for you that we're going to let you know in the weeks to come as we get close to it. From donations to sign-ups to serve for the day. I mean, I can't wait for it. And if you have a particular desire to serve in a very specific way, come and talk with me about it. doesn't mean that we'll necessarily be able to do it, but I want us to maximize our giftings and our abilities in this church for our community. So anything we can do that day, Think about it and talk with me about it. Um, but I, I am so excited for this day of love for. Um, all right. Sermon's not done yet. I'm sorry. I know. I got six minutes. So I'm going I'm to go through it real quick. Okay. Now I'm just going to read the whole slaves portion. I'm not going to read. But remember I told you he talks about submit to the emperors, the governing authorities, submit to sl uh, slaves, submit to your masters, uh, wives, submit to your husbands, submit to suffering. Let me just read the slaves portion because it leads to Jesus. You always got to lead to Jesus, right? Slaves. In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Again, Peter's making this so hard. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. Highlight that. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? This is where we talked about last week, be careful not to victimize yourself. Where we talked about the fact where Peter said, if you committed murder, if you stole, if you committed any kind of debauchery or any kind of division, don't, don't be self-righteous and say you're suffering for the Lord. No. To this you were called. Suffering. Suffering. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Here's his example. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. He was just. He wasn't a liar. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed.
you. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I have two more points. The first one is this. Gospel work is hard work. It's hard work to live for Jesus day in and day out. Speaking to people specifically that are being falsely persecuted, Christians, enslaved. And he says, see God towards the very people that are being ungodly. Show them Christ. Christ himself suffered for us. What Peter is getting at is the witness that we carry when we respond with love to hatred. Which leads me to my second and last point. Your greatest testimony is how loud you love in response to hate. You really think people are going to remember when you throw punches to somebody who wronged you? Maybe for a week when they're healing from a broken nose. Maybe when you make it on Channel 4 News. Because it's sad. You've got to fade. Or people will never forget their did everything against them that we know they didn't deserve when we kissed them and we kissed them and we hurt them. This is Peter's response. They did that. Why did they never repent? Why did they never give in? Why did they never respond in a like manner? Why did they always turn the other cheek? Why were they always compassionate? both individuals to a place of self-reflection to recognize there is something profoundly different about their lives that I need to know. I need to seek Jesus. Jesus left us unindebted. Do you understand what that means? Not just something for us to watch and go, wow. Something for us to follow something for us to reciprocate, something for us to take notes on and say, Lord, let me be just like you were when I hurled insults at you, when I screamed out against you in anger, when I turned my back on you, when I spit on you, when I insulted you, when I hated everything and everyone that had anything to do with you. You loved me. You didn't respond in love to my cause. See, it's really powerful. Peter in chapter 4, in this same line of thought, he says, always be prepared to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Remember that. Always be prepared to give an answer. This is that, that where we get the famous topic of apologetics, the defense of the faith. And, and what I have learned and have been trained on, especially as a minister, is that this has to do with logical defense of the faith, being able to explain, well, if God is so good, why is there evil in the world and all that? And while I think that that stands true, the context of that is not at all logical. When people are persecuting you and inevitably finally say, why won't you just turn on Jesus and give in? Why won't you just walk away? Give a defense of hope. Because no matter what you do to me, I know my eternal destination in Jesus far outweighs them all. These light and momentary troubles are fleeting, and it hurts, and I'm mad, and I'm offended, but I'm not going to give in because I stand in grace as Jesus stood in grace. I am not easily offended. I will receive the insults just as Christ received the insults because no matter what you think and say about me, I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. I am not that anymore. So I'm not going to respond like I would have responded. Defending our faith isn't about proving the logic of it. As 
I close, I just I want to bring it back to the last phrase of the example of Jesus given by Peter. He says, by his wounds, you were healed. By his wounds, you were healed. If I could just ask you, bow your heads and close your eyes when I pray, just, just so that you can focus. You don't need to look around at anybody else. This is just a time where I'm really hoping God will move on your heart to heal. By his wounds, you are healed. These people were being persecuted. They were being harassed. They were being unjustly treated. They had wounds. You're here today, and I'm sure many of you have wounds. You have hurt. You have pain. You have mistakes. You have trauma. You're you're weighed down to the point of utter despair and depression because of all of that weight. And you're wondering, how am I ever going to be free of that? By his wounds, you're healed. The weight of condemnation is no more. What someone else said about you and did to you, it means nothing when Jesus comes in. He wipes it away. He makes you new. And he reminds you of that daily. When you're weighed down by your past mistakes, and how could I ever be considered righteous and worthy and deserving? By his wounds, you are healed. Jesus, Lord, I'm just lifting up to you today, right now, this body of believers. I want to invite you to stand with me on your feet. And and let me just pray for you. Jesus, right now, I pray, I pray, God, that as we go our separate ways, and Jesus, wow, this was a time of, of godliness, and we were able to be in an environment that was uplifting and, and approving and admonishing of holiness and righteousness and godliness. Lord, we're about to go back into a world, a territory where there is no godliness for some of us. We're going to be in situations where we're going to be so tempted and hard-pressed to give in to temptation and to go back to our sinful desires. But Lord, I pray that when we leave, we would remember to abstain from those sinful desires because we know that you are coming back, Jesus, and that there is a reward great in heaven that is waiting for those that are faithful. Jesus, help us to stand firm in that. And Jesus, when we go into places and circumstances that we're just so hard-pressed, and concern about whether or not, like Naaman, we, we're compromising our faith. God, as long as we only profess and declare you as the one true God and are unashamed in doing it, I pray that we would not allow that to lead us to a place of fear. I pray that, that, would not, that we would not allow ourselves to fall under the lie that we can't be respecting of individuals that don't believe that we do. Lord, we're unashamed to say that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we will gladly have that conversation unashamedly with somebody. But God, I pray that we wouldn't, we wouldn't go in so apprehensive, so angry, so begrudging. Jesus, help us to lead with respect and honor. Lord, above all else, we always look to you as our example. Jesus, for those whose hearts are heavy right now, for those who are overwhelmed with those burdens, Jesus, I pray right now that they would experience the love of Jesus. Lord, I pray that as they have heard your word, they've seen who you were. They've seen what you did, and they saw the example that you set for us. And for those here today that want to receive you, God, I pray right now that you would open up their hearts. I pray that they would call on you in no magical, formulaic way. I pray that they would just call on you and they would say, Jesus, here I am. Forgive me and help me. Jesus, for all of us, forgive us. Help us. We need you day after day after day. God, we look to you. We trust in you. Our hope is in you above all else, Jesus. We will not look to the world. We will not look to brokenness. We will not look to sin. I pray that we will always keep our eyes fixed on you. I thank you for what we stand for as a church. 
I pray that we would maintain the integrity of it and never compromise. Be with us, I pray. And in Jesus' mighty name, the people of God said amen, 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 amen. Hey, God bless you. Have a fantastic week, and we'll see you next week.